Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We will continue our series on the seven churches of Revelation. If you weren't with us last week, I'll give you a quick overview of what, where we're headed with the whole series. The series, um, each message will look the same. We'll look at the, authors, the, the authorship of the king. We'll look at the address of the king, and we'll look at the affirmation of the king. So the next several weeks, that's the outline for each of the seven churches. Uh, God has talking to John to, from Jesus, and Jesus is saying to John affirmations and uh, condemnations on the churches of the New Testament here. And so if you remember from last week, the way that the structure of these seven churches are laid out is if you have in your mind's eye a picture. And so there's the picture frame. That's what we looked at last week. And we'll look at the last church. The last church and the first church are the same. They're um, this place of you've lost your first love. What does it mean for us as a church to lose our first love? And last week we looked at these are, this is what it means for us to get back to our first love. You remember we talked about there has to be in us an attitude or a spirit of repentance. He says, remember where you've fallen and repent and, and go back to doing the things you did at first. And he'll tell the same church, the last church, the same thing. And this week is the mat of the church, you know, in a picture frame. There's the frame, the mat. And um, I'm having like major feedback, so it's like bothering me. I don't know if it's bothering you, uh, but it's definitely bothering me. I'm going to step to the side. Maybe it's that microphone. Maybe it's possessed or something. So there's the mat of the, of the picture. The mat kind of brings highlight to the picture, what's happening in the picture. And so that's this week. We're going to look at the mat of the church and what, what's happening here. And this is where the, the two churches that we'll look at, this church and the second to last, uh, there's no condemnation for the church. It's all affirmation. This is what you're doing well, church. This is how to live out what it means to be a believer We'll look at that this morning, and we'll look at really the faithfulness of Christ, because the only way for us to be faithful is to remember the faithfulness that God's given us through His Son, Jesus. We'll look at that this morning. And then the middle three churches are really the, the heart and the soul of the passages, because it really goes after the, hey, it goes from bad to worse. When you lose your first love and we're, you're not remaining faithful, this is what it's going to look like, so much so in the middle church. He talks about that you're dead to me. And my prayer for us during this series is that that would not be true for us at Palace Chapel. That Christ would never pin a letter to us and in that letter would say, it's though you were dead to me. I pray that's not true. And um, the question I'm asking myself, the question I hope that you're asking over the next several weeks is, what would the letter look like if Christ were to write us a letter here at Palace Chapel? What would he have to say to us? Would it be like the church we'll look at this morning? Would it be all affirmation or would there be some condemnation that he would bring on to us that we must uh, remember and repent and return back to the Lord? So this morning we're going to look at the church of... I'm not sure if that's me. I'm not sure what's happening this morning. Uh, it, it's just been one of those mornings already. If I, I'm just going to be real honest. So I'll just walk you through my morning already. Uh, we had a deacon's meeting, and I live about an hour away, and so I woke up, and I thought, man, I'm, it's great this morning, and I'm getting ready, I jump out the shower, 
and I notice I need to shave, and I go to find my shaving cream, and it's gone. So I'm like, oh, this is, this is a great start. So I, I make shift and shave, and then uh, get ready, and then I can't find my dress shoes. I'm like, great. So I'm scurrying around the house looking for dress shoes. Can't find those. Then I go to look for my wallet. I can't find my wallet. Finally find my wallet. Then I think, well, the next thing I need is my keys. Find my keys. That wasn't true. It took me about 10 minutes to find my keys. So much so, then I get out to my car, and Jared's parked behind me. So I have to have Jared move, and uh, I decided to take Jared's car. And then I get halfway down my block and realize, wait, I forgot my Bible, and I forgot my suit jacket. So I turn, I whip around, and I'm whipping around, and uh, come and um, hit something with Jared's car. And so I get a text message from Jared this morning. Hey, what happened to my bumper? I was like, oh, great. Finally get in the car, get here, and... Now we're having a microphone issues. So that's, that's kind of the morning. So that, that's my starting point here. That's the, the starting block I'm coming out of. So um, I tend to know that when uh, Satan is attacking, God's at work. And so that's my prayer this morning for us, that uh, this would not be a distraction all the way from hitting something in poor Jared's car to a microphone. Um, but I do pray that God would be uh, faithful to us as we're faithful to him. So let's go before the Lord in prayer this morning. Uh, God, you know all that's happening, even this morning. I pray that any distractions that I know that I've come in with or anyone else has come in with, God, that you would, in these next few moments, uh, remove those distractions, that there would be nothing in our hearts, in our minds, to hinder us from hearing your word. Uh, Not my words, but your word. Your word is faithful. Your word is true. It's sharper than any two-edged sword you tell us. Quick to divide marrow and flesh. And I pray that would be true for us this morning. I pray that you would use this word of affirmation to this church. And in so many ways, God, that you would speak affirmation to us here at Palace Chapel. So lead us this morning. Open our hearts wide open uh, to receive what you would have for us this morning. We pray that you'd go before us. Uh, We need you, Lord Jesus. We need you. We're in desperate need. Um, we're hopeless and desperate without you. Uh, you tell us that in John 15. So I pray that all would be true for us this morning. So lead us and guide us. This morning is yours. Have your way. We pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Let's read the, uh, Revelation chapter 2, 8 through 11. I'll read it all, and then I'll come back, and we'll teach through the text uh, together. Revelation 2.8, it says, And the angel of the church of Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulations, I know your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and they are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will be, have tribulation, be, be faithful unto death. And I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I just want to give some background information the way I did last week. And I'll give background information. It's important to know where these churches are and who these churches are. And so this is the church in Smyrna. Uh, you know, I, I, I thought, man, how amazing is it that uh, we're here, here in Walter Hill, and just a few uh, miles away is a city of Smyrna. And so 
Uh, for me this week, it's just been fun to think through this passage because in so many ways, this church is, is the same amount of distance away from Ephesus as if uh, we are from Smyrna. It's about uh, 30 miles or so north of Ephesus. And Smyrna is north of us. And so this is a great city. There's about 200,000 people in this city at the time that John is writing through Jesus is writing to this church. And this church is this church is growing, but the city is growing. The city is known for its education. The city is known for its science. The city is known for its medicine. So we see the value of education in this city. And we also see that this in this time it, it didn't ever quite get to the same place, the same status as Ephesus, the size, the popularity, the grandness of Ephesus, but it's growing. And so much so that uh, when Ephesus, we talked last week, Ephesus seaport um, later in its history dried up, and so there was no seaport left in Ephesus, but Smyrna stayed a great seaport. It's where all the exchange for all of modern Asia happened, Turkey um, happened in. You know, also about this city, it was a beautiful city. More than anything else that this city was known for was its beauty. And I, I don't know about you, but Middle Tennessee is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. And so for me, as I've just been thinking about all the similarities between us and this church and the beauty that we have, uh, it kept bringing me back to what would God say to us? And here's this church, this little church uh, that's nestled uh, in this major metropolitan area. I think that would be true for us here at Powell's Chapel. So the church of Smyrna, there's not much said about the church of Smyrna. This is the only place in the Bible that it's talked about. So we don't have a whole lot of detail, but we can kind of gather other uh, resources around us. Um, if you've ever heard of the great theologian, the great um, kind of ancestor to the Christian faith, his name was Polycarp. Polycarp came from this church. He was an amazing man of God, and he came from this small church. So this church has great history the same way that the church of Ephesus did. He, he was one of the leading fathers of the Christian belief system that we hold to today. And so Polycarp, as a little boy, grew up in this church. And I thought to myself, what little boy or what little girl may be growing up that we don't even know about in this we can say, well, we're just a small church that's tucked in the middle of nowhere. That would be true about this small church, and yet God can do crazy things in the midst of people. We don't have to be a church of 10,000 for God to hand-select one or a few of us to have a great impact on the world. And so I, I was thinking this week as I was praying and studying who may be the polycarp in this church this morning. For us and for me as the pastor and for you, are we praying for that small child? We prayed a few weeks ago for the children that would come in for VVS. Who knows? Even uh, young David Cole, maybe he is the, the young man that got baptized a few weeks ago. Maybe he will have an impact, and he would write back 10, 20, 30 years from now and say it all started at VBS in 2015. And so I, I just wonder if there's a, how God will use this place. You know, the, the name of the church, Smyrna, is also this idea of this spice. If you go back, it's the, the, the spice is myrrh. 
The, that's the word, the, what the word Smyrna means, myrrh. And I began to, to study that and think, how much of that would be true for that, that church because of all the persecution? That's what we'll talk about here in this text. You see, that spice was used for death. So all of a sudden, this church begins to have this reputation about being the spice for the Christian who dies. The faithfulness of this church, because of their persecution to God, to God their, their influence begins to spread all over Asia Minor. And they become the spice of the rest of the churches. Is that true for us this morning here? Are we the spice of this community? Do people see us and see all that God is doing here and have a sense that God is still at work? Here's the scariest part for me of this passage of Scripture is what we will read here going on. As it says in verse 8, it says the angel of the church. The angel simply means, and he addresses the angel in each of the seven churches, the angel again just means the messenger or the pastor. So Jesus is writing the pastor of the church. He says to the pastor of the church, this is what I know to be true about you. And he says this, I, I want to start with the, who I am as the writer. It's amazing in that time frame that the writers of all the letters, they wouldn't sign their names or a uh, a salutation at the end, they'd always put the salutation at the beginning of the letter. And so each of these letters, the salutation comes at the beginning. And so Jesus is saying, this is who is writing you the letter. He says, this is who I am. This is the authorship of the letter. This is who gives authority to the letter. And he says this. He says, write this. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. In other words, he's saying, write this. The Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha and the Omega and the first and the last, what Jesus is referring to is what they called God back in the Old Testament. It's a reference back to the Old Testament. And so here we see at the very start of it that Jesus is saying that he's equal with God himself. Do we believe that to be true, that God and Christ are equal this morning? You see, because if we do believe that, then the rest of this passage will make sense. But if we don't believe that, the rest of the passage will make no sense to any of us. It wouldn't have made sense to that small church. And so he's saying, I'm the first, I'm the last. He says this. He said, not only am I the first and the last, I'm the one who died and came back to life. And he's saying, so not only am I fully God, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, but I'm also fully human. I came to die and I came back to life. And so here in this moment, we see the fullness of who Jesus Christ is. He's fully God and fully man. That's what sets us and our religion apart from every other religion in all the world. That we do, we serve a God of the universe that's all-powerful, all in control, and yet at the same time is fully human. That we really do have a human God that came to this planet and gave up all that he had for us. Turn with me to a few passages this morning. This, I, I so want to just stop here and just preach geez, these few words uh, this morning because all of our Christian life hinges on this idea that we do have a God that's fully God and we have a God that's fully human. And we have a God that's the first and the last. And we have a God that's the Alpha and the Omega. We have a God that came 
to live and to die. So turn with me to 1 Peter. Just a few books to your left in the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. This is who Christ is. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus Christ was the righteousness of God, and he suffered on behalf of each one of us. The righteousness of God suffered on our behalf because of our unrighteousness. What? That he might bring us to God, putting to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Here's what Peter is saying here in 1 Peter chapter 3. He's saying that there's the righteous, the God of the universe. And he died for the unrighteous, that's you and I. Why did God send his son Christ to be the righteousness, or as it says, the propitiation, he tells us, uh, for our sin. He became, the righteousness became unrighteousness that he might bring who? Us to God. That's how we get back to God. And so this passage is so important for us. Flip over to uh, I, I think there's no other passage for me in the New Testament that, that makes this idea that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully human than in Philippians chapter 2. Here, Paul is writing of what Christ is and how Christ is our example. And he says this in verse 5. It says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is your, yourselves in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to explain who Christ Jesus is. Who, though he was in the form of God, though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, He's saying, though I was God, I was willing to give up my godness to come and save my people. He says, God, Christ, did not grasp that. But he what? He emptied himself out for us. That, God, that Christ was fully God and he was obedient to God's commandment to come out of heaven and to dwell with us. And it says he emptied himself. I don't know about you, but when I think of what was that conversation like in heaven? Where, where God looked at Jesus and said to Jesus, hey, there's only one way for us to redeem our people, and that's for you, my son, to go and give your life for my people. And Jesus is in heaven at this time, and Jesus, everything is Jesus's at his command. Jesus is sitting on the throne of heaven. It, it tells us later on in Revelation chapter 4 that there's this song that continues to be sung over Jesus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Jesus in that moment made a decision to empty himself of all that for us. And it says there in, in Philippians that Jesus emptied himself by what? Taking on the form of a servant. You see, Jesus could have come in the form of anything. He could have come as the king. He could have come as the conquering king. He could have come as all those things. And yet he says, no, I'll come as a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So here it's saying that God himself, Jesus Christ, 
takes on form of human. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. How did Christ humble himself? In obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's who Jesus is to us this morning. That Jesus is saying, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, and yet I've come and I've died. And so Jesus is setting up his authorship to this church because what's going to happen in the rest of this letter, it's not exciting news for this church. This isn't something that the, the church would read and think, oh, we've got to go throw a block party. Jesus is, is delivering us great news, and so the church has to believe this to be true. Is God fully God and fully human? Does he have authorship of all things? Because what Jesus is about to call this young church to is heartbreaking. And I believe it's true for us this morning. You see, in John, the book of John, John writes to us and says, hey, the, the world's going to hate you. If you follow me, the world's going to hate you. We talked about that a little bit last week in our sermon. If we really sell out to become followers of Jesus Christ, the world is not going to be happy with us. And that's what happens here to this church in Smyrna. He says, remember who I am. I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm the one who came, I'm the one who came back to life. So he's saying, I died and I rose again. That's another thing that separates our God from every other God. That we are the only religion that serves a God that has an empty tomb, amen? I have friends that have gone over to Israel and they always, you know, they always take a tour to the tomb, supposedly where the tomb of Jesus is. Let me just go ahead and, uh, spoiler alert for you, you're going to go to the tomb, it's going to be empty. So I don't know what you're going to go see. You're just going to see an empty cave. But you can go to every other world religion and see a tomb with someone still sitting in it with bones. That's not true for us. Amen? We serve a God that rose from the dead, and because of his resurrection, we have life. Because of his life and his resurrection, we as believers have life. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in this passage. He goes on and says this. He now addresses the church, the address from the king. What does he address to this small church? He says this, circle this in your Bible. He says this, I know. I love those two little words, I know. Two intimate words. You see, those words say to the church, he knows them intimately. He's just not writing from his throne. He is writing them from a place of I, don't, I not only know you, but I walk with you. We talked about that last week. And so Jesus knows this church. He knows the intimate details of this church the same way that's true for us here at Palace Chapel. God knows us intimately. And even more so than that, even more so than as a church, God knows you intimately. He knows exactly where you are this morning. He knows all that's going on in your heart this morning. He knows the joy that you're feeling. He knows the sadness you're feeling. He knows the loneliness you're feeling. He knows the depths of your pain this morning. I know, our King tells us. Those are comforting words, I hope, for us as believers in the midst of our stuff. I know. I know, he says. And what does God through Jesus know? 
He says three things that he knows about this church. I know the tribulation. That, that word tribulation means the, the pressure that you're going through. The, the Greek word there means pressure. You see, there's this huge amount of pressure that this small church is going through. And maybe that's true for you this morning. Maybe you're going through pressure this morning. Maybe you're going through tribulation this morning. And remember this, God knows it. God, we do not serve a far-off God. We serve a God that's in our midst with us this morning. He knows the pressure you're going through. He knows the pressure that this church is going through. What's the pressure that this church is going through this morning? The pressure that this church here in this text is going through was their faithfulness to God, and because of their faithfulness to God, they were hated in their city. And so all around them every day, because of their faithfulness to God, the pressures were coming against them. So much so that he goes on to say this. He says, I know the tribulation and the pressure that you go under, and it feeds into the next thing. He says, it feeds into your poverty. You see, these, these young Christians began to take a stand for the gospel of Jesus in their city, and because they began to take a stand for the gospel of Jesus in their city, the, the unbelievers around them began to flood out of their places of business. And so they had no income anymore. There was no way for them to make ends meet anymore because of the pressure that they're going to, because of the faithfulness that they were serving God with. And yet Jesus says this to them, but you are rich. I love that idea right there. God's economy is not our economy. God's dollar bills are not our dollar bills. And he's saying to this young church here, hey, I know the tribulation, I know out of the tribulation, you're becoming economically poor, but you are very rich today. And what are they rich with, you may ask? We can just see as believers, these are some of the things that you and I this morning, though you may be facing trials and though you may be in persecution, these are the things that we're rich with this morning, our salvation. We could just end there. If all that we have this morning is our salvation, amen. Because there's something waiting for us way bigger than what's waiting for us out the door here this morning. And he's saying to us this morning, I know your trials, I know your persecution, I know your poverty, but you're rich this morning. And so often in my mind, and I think so often in your minds, we, we have this idea of what economy looks like. Well, I don't have this, and I do have this, and I don't have this, and I do have this, and Jesus is saying this, all that matters is your salvation. If you're a believer here this morning, that is enough for us. Because in our salvation, that gives us a covering for so many more things. So many more things. The other things that that gives us is this, that it, it allows us to be holy. Our holiness because of our salvation. Holiness just means we're set apart. So we have holiness to be rich in. Oh, the grace and the mercy of the Lord we're rich in. If you're a believer here this morning, the mercies of God. The mercies of God flow out on us this morning. 
all the things that God gives to us, those are the mercies of God. The next thing that we have is the grace of God. So the mercies of God were in, the grace of God were in. And then the next thing is the peace of God. Throughout everything, in the middle of the storm, there's peace. I could not imagine going through all that I've been through in my life, and I can't imagine you as God's people going all that you've been through and there be no peace of God. If we have no peace of God, we have no hope. That's the other thing that our salvation gives us, that we're rich in. We're rich in hope this morning. the last thing that we have is the fellowship with God and with others because of our salvation. And so to this young church, he's saying, I know the tribulation you're going through. I know the poverty you're going through. The the other word is the slander. Because of what they took a stand for, the people in that city began to call them all sorts of names and began to accuse them all sorts of things. They, They were accused uh, of incest because of the way they would talk about their brothers and sisters in Christ. They would be, call, be accused of that. They'd be accused of being cannibals because of their view on the Lord's Supper, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And so all these accusations are coming against this young church. And in the midst of all that, Jesus says to them, but you're rich. Do we believe we're rich this morning? Whether you have 10 cents in your pocket or $10 million in your pocket. God's economy is not our economy. We are rich this morning because of that great cross and the blood of the cross this morning. I'm going to read at the end of this sermon, for me, what it means for us and how we become rich. It's in Isaiah chapter 52, and that's how I'm going to end. So just earmarking your Bible. We're going to get to Isaiah 52 at the end of this this sermon. And so Jesus is saying, I know you, I know what you're going through. And then he says this. He says this. This is, he says this, this is what it's so important for us to go back to chapter 2, verse 8. He says, in all your tribulations and in all your poverty and all the slander that's going on, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Now there's a lot of promises of God that I like. The promise of heaven, the promises of salvation, the promises of fellowship. The promise I don't like is what I just read, the promise that there will be suffering. There will be for us on this planet suffering. Christ told us that. That's a promise from Christ. There will be suffering. He's saying, in the middle of your suffering, do not fear. There's only one way for us not to fear, and that's to be reminded of who's writing the letter. You see, I have a lot of things to fear if I don't believe that God is who God says he is. If I don't believe that God is the Alpha and the Omega, the first, the end, the all-consuming God, our salvation, our Savior, our Lord, our King, our Holy One, the set-apart one. You see, I've got a lot to fear if that's not true about him. And so he's saying to them, it's very important for you to remember who I am. Because if you remember who I am, there will not be that anxiety, the fear, the grippling fear that that lies us in the bed, that we will wake up with a hope and a promise. 
You see, I think so often we can read that and it's like, don't fear, don't fear, Christians, don't fear. Well, there's only one way not to fear. The way to not to fear is to remember where and who we come from. And so he says to that young church, don't fear what you are about to suffer. You see, I think that's true for us here at Powell's Chapel. If we begin to take a stand for Christ in this community, there will be suffering. So if you don't want there to be suffering, I may never get asked to do this again, but just walk out the door and don't come back. Because if you don't want suffering, that means you don't want to take a stand for Jesus Christ. And Christ says himself, if you say you don't know me, I'll tell you I don't know you either. That's scary. And so this morning, if you don't want to suffer for Christ, there is a door. And it goes both ways. But if we're going to begin to take a stand for Christ and take a stand for Christ... In this community, I promise this, there will be suffering on this church. We will suffer for Christ if we take a stand. And we live in a day and age that uh, is so scary, that so many believers have stopped taking a stand. We're in the mess we're in because believers stopped taking a stand. Because they wanted the easy way out. They wanted the easy, softer way. And Christ says with me, there is no easy, softer way. If the world hated me, I promise you this, Jesus says, the world will hate you. The world will hate you. And I don't know what it is about the church. I don't know about churches, why we want the world to love the church so much. Because we want the world to love us so much, we compromise in so many ways. Well, I don't know if the Bible really says that. No, no, it's right there. It really says that. Well, it used to mean that. It doesn't mean that anymore. Because we don't want to suffer. You see, church history shows us when there's suffering in the church, there's explosive growth in the church. How come China is the fastest growing church in the world? Because they got a huddle in a cave underneath the earth just so they can do what we're doing here this morning. How come India is the second largest growing church in the world? Because they got to hide. Because they experience suffering every single day. You see, there's very, very little fear, no, though it's increasing, that there's going to be a mob of people that are going to come in here and yank me from this pulpit and kill me in front of all you. But our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world, they wake up every Sunday with that fear. That they will be killed for their faith. And they take a stand every day for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of their faithfulness, God remains faithful to them, and we see expansive growth in the Christian church all over the world. And yet, we're the fastest dying church in the world. That is sad to me. One of the very reasons that this country was founded was for, for our religious freedom. And because of that, we've had many, many men and women 
give their lives for that freedom, and yet we as believers no longer will take a stance for what's true. There will be suffering. There will be suffering as we take a stand for Christ, and Christ says, do not fear. He said, and here's the deal. Here's who's going to bring that suffering. Behold, it's the devil that is about to throw some of you into prison. We do have an enemy, 1 Peter tells us. 1 Peter 5 tells us there is a devil that prowls around like a roaring lion waiting, what, to devour us. So make no mistake about it this morning. When there is persecution in our life, when there is persecution, it's because we have an enemy that seeks to destroy us. Why? Because the, the, the devil knows that if we as a church begin to take a stand, that his kingdom weakens and the kingdom of God expands. We are a threat to that kingdom. But we're no threat if we take no stand. I've often been told by preachers and teachers and mentors in my life that, Todd, if you're not experiencing persecution, you need to get on your face before God and ask God if you're being obedient to him. I'm like, what? He's saying, because if you're obedient to him, there's going to be persecution. And if there's no persecution in your life, there may be a trace in your life that you're not being obedient to him. Because there's a promise from God that we will face persecution. And it's going to come from the devil himself. And he says, he's going to throw you into prison. What for? That you may be tested. And the testing isn't coming from God. The testing is to say to us, this is what it looks like. Is it true for us? We'll flip over with me really quickly to James. And James does a beautiful job of mapping out what the reason is for our persecution and for our suffering. James chapter 1 says this. Consider it all joy. Do I consider persecution my joy? Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials, when you meet persecutions of various kinds. How come? Because we know that the testing of your faith, the trials in your life, the persecution in your life, are the testing of your faith, what you hold to be true and what you believe in produce what? They produce steadfastness. And what does steadfastness produce? It says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be what? Perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's what trials are for. That's what persecution is for. It's for our faith. It's for our steadfastness. And so that we will be lacking and nothing, and that we will be complete. The Lord uses persecution and trials to perfect our faith. Turn back with me to Revelation 2. He says this, that you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation. And then he goes on to the affirmation. In verse 10b, he says, be faithful unto death. Continue is another way to put it. 
the Greek says, be faithful unto death. Because when you're faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. Remember, it goes back to what we talked about last week. It talks about the perseverance of the saint. Saying, when your trial comes and when death comes, because death is coming to all of us in the room, just remain faithful to God. The only way for us to remain faithful to God is to go all the way back to the authorship of this letter. Do you and do I believe that God is who God says He is? And do I believe who Christ is who Christ says He is? Do I believe that He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who came and died so that I could have life? Do I believe that? Because if I believe that, that's going to change everything about me. It's going to change every way that I believe, every course of my actions. If I believe the authorship of this letter and the authorship of your salvation, if I believe that, then I will remain faithful because I'll believe in all the other promises that God offers to us. And he says this, he who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, that's you and I here at Powell's Chapel. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What he's saying is, though there is a second death coming, if we remain faithful to him, and we remain in our salvation with Him, and we remain faithful to all that He's called us to do, hell does not await us, but heaven does. Do I believe that this morning? Do I believe heaven awaits me this morning? Despite all that's going to happen in my life, do I believe that heaven awaits me? Because of all that God has done for me through Christ Jesus. As promised, flip over to Isaiah. Chapter 52. This is who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done for us this morning. 52, verse 13. I'll simply just read it and I'll end in prayer. It says, This is God speaking. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Many were astonished at him. His appearance was marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of a child of mankind. So shall he sparkle many, sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told to them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who is believed that he has heard from us? And to whom, whom him he has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Talks about Jesus the next many, many verses. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out in the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we would look at him. And no beauty that we would even desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Of man of sorrow. And acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we are like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity, the iniquity is of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep before the shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of God. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for the guilty, he, we shall see his offering and he shall pro- prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, we see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear our iniquities. Therefore I will divide him as a portion to the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgression, with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. That is who we believe to be true this morning. That is the Alpha. That is the Omega. That's the first. That's the last. That's the one who conquers everything. Do we believe that to be true this morning? Do you believe that to be true this morning? Have you placed your hope and your faith in a resurrected God this morning? In our King, the King that writes this letter this morning, Do we believe that to be true this morning? If you do not know Christ this morning, you have no hope this morning. You will not remain faithful unto death because there is no hope for you. So this morning, if you don't know Christ, at the end of the service, I'll be standing here. I would love the honor to pray with you. If you're here this morning and you're going through grief or you're going through trials, if you're going through persecution and you just need prayer to remain faithful through it all, please come forward. I would love the opportunity to pray and to allow God to remind you of his faithfulness to you. We have a faithful God. In spite of all of it, God's economy is not our economy. We are rich. Let us pray. Jesus, thanks for your faith. Jesus, thanks for your obedience to your Heavenly Father to come out of heaven and to be with us.
God, as your word says, I know. You know each of us intimately. You know the details of our lives. You know our joys. You know our pain. You know our sorrow, God. You know all that we're going through in this morning. God, I pray for wherever your people are this morning. You promise us your Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit is the great comfort. I pray we be comforted by Him this morning. You are so faithful to us, God. Even in spite of our faithful, faithlessness. Continue to lead this church, God. Let us be a faithful church that you would write to. And in your letter to us, you would say, Well done. You remain faithful. God, I pray that you would put on each of us what you put on this young church, the crown of life. We have everlasting life because of what you did, Jesus, for us on the cross. Please allow us to be reminded of that daily. Lead us and go before us, God. Comfort us, Holy Spirit. I pray this in Christ's mighty name.